1: Hello and welcome to Two Footed Podcast on Wednesday, October 21st, brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at libertyshield.com. I would highly advise everybody get themselves an IPTV and a VPN rather than paying the 15 quid that uh, the broadcasters are trying to charge you to watch football matches. If you want to use that 15 quid, give it to your local food bank. I'm delighted to be joined today by Lee Scott. How are you, sir? Yeah,
0: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Uh, So you were off on a family trip last week when the international games were boring everybody else to sleep. (laughs) Um, But this week, the Premier League is back. So you're back in business. Uh, You were recently on the Scouted Football podcast. So shout out to those guys. That's a great podcast, and I would recommend everybody give it a listen. Um, the weekend, what, what caught your eye? Let's, let's start with the, with the first thing.
0: I think the, the first thing that caught my eye, I think that everybody by now has probably seen the clip from Monday Night Football on Sky of Jamie Carragher trying to explain what Pep Guardiola was trying to do for Manchester City against Arsenal. And it's quite an interesting starting point because it's the first time in mainstream media that we have actually seen somebody say formation is not important numbers on the pitch are not important. It's the control of space and the exploitation of space that matters. And we really saw that to the full extent in this match. I think that what Manchester City tried to do consistently was find that isolation that they like in the wide areas. They look to to isolate their winger against fullbacks who they think are weaker. So in this match Pep Guardiola obviously chose Kieran Tierney as one of the weak points in the Arsenal team. And as a proud Scotsman, that that's something that's quite painful because obviously Kieran Tierney is one of the the great white hopes of the Scottish national team, but you could understand why. And, and we saw throughout the movement of Gerald Cancelo, who didn't quite understand at points what he was supposed to be doing, but when he moved inside into centre of midfield in that inverted position, it really opened the whole game out for City.
1: Yeah, so I was really, really impressed with on the in this game because he's somebody that since arriving with City, it's been very hard to pinpoint what his role is. Because obviously, by trade, he's a right-back, but City already had Kyle Walker. Defensively, Walker is a substantially better player than Canseo. But in recent years, Walker's attacking output has dropped off and diminished. He's become more of a defender than the attacking fullback he was, say, at Spurs. Canseo, throughout his career, has always been known, as been exceptionally good going forward and a little bit hopeless defensively but it was really hard for City to find the right balance, but in this game they did appear to find the ability to obviously play both of them because of the shape, but the tactical game plan enabled both of them to have, I thought, quite a big impact on the game.
0: Yeah, hugely. I think you're right, saying that, that Cancelo, I mean, there was a there was a point when Cancelo signed for City that he never played, and there was a lot of speculation that, that Guardiola didn't like him and hadn't wanted him at the club, and and didn't rate him as a player, but gradually over the course of months, and I think that the the coronavirus shutdown kind of helped this to an extent because gradually we've seen Cancelo start to adapt to the role that Guardiola wants from him because the fullbacks are probably the position that is hardest to play in this Pep Guardiola team, uh, apart from perhaps centre back because you're you're exposed so often playing in the centre defence for this Manchester City team, but. Pullbacks, from a tactical perspective, are asked to do so many different things. You, you touched upon the fact that Kyle Walker has become more defensive as he, his career has progressed, but he's also become more nuanced in that he's capable of moving into the midfield and, and coming inside in, in those inverted positions and just being able to to occupy space. And And that's really what, what Carragher was talking about in Monday Night Football. He was talking about the fact that, that Cancelo in this match continually moved inside, in the fullback position and he dragged Pukai Osaka with him. And that opened up the isolation with Mares and Tierney on, on the far side. I think that it's interesting that he essentially had two right-backs in the same team. Obviously, Gareth Southgate got a lot of stick in the international break for one of his selections, but has, I think, three right-backs perhaps in that one. But you can understand why when you see the kind of different things that they're trying to do. Because when Cancelo makes that movement inside, Kyle Walker's then behind him to control that that space and to guard against transition and to to make sure that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang can't spring and transition and attack for Arsenal. So it was very well thought out, very well planned. And you saw throughout the game that Mikel Arteta was trying to make adjustments to try to account for this. But every time they made an adjustment, Manchester City then made a slight rotation in their system. And it was just more, this is more of a chess match in the Premier League than I've seen for a long time.
1: I have to say, Lee, I was, I was actually really impressed with Arteta in this game. Now, I do believe that in these bigger matches against the top teams, we need to see more from Arteta in terms of the attacking side. Like, what is your, what is your attacking structure rather than just like, let's try and hit that long ball to Aubameyang and hope that he can conjure something. But defensively, I thought he had his team really well set up, and we've seen it in the past. We've seen it against Liverpool and a couple of and, and Chelsea. He he does set his team up really well, and what I enjoy about this Arsenal team defensively is that there's really clear rotations. When Baki Osaka steps into midfield, Tierney can shift to left wing back. Gabriel can move across to left centre back. David Luiz moves across, and then Bellerin tucks in as your third centre-back. And I think one of the criticisms I often have about younger managers who sort of default into that back three in big games is generally that they don't really have a great understanding of setting up a team defensively. But I think Arteta is the exception to that rule. I think he's actually very, very good defensively.
0: Yeah, I think that's been one of his real strengths. I think that when he first came into Arsenal, the first thing that he did was was Luke to address the culture of the club and, and players that weren't willing to buy into the mentality and the culture that he wanted weren't welcome. We saw that. We've seen Matteo Gunduzi move out on loan. the Ozil's barely featured and, again, he's barely featured. And But the likes of Granit Xhaka is almost a, the counterpoint to that because he looked like he was on his way out of the club, but Arteta was intent on keeping him because he knew that, from a leadership standpoint, Xhaka would be very important the next thing he did was build the defensive unit, and, and that's sensible. I think the question mark, and you're absolutely right, the question mark is creativity, because in the system that, that he wants to play, this 3-4-3 three, three system almost, the two central midfielders aren't giving you anything from a creative point of view going forward, and for all that there's a lot of hype around the fact that they've gone out and signed Thomas Partey, who's a fantastic player in his own right, I think that Hossam Awar would have been a more effective creative force in the attacking phase than Thomas Partey will be. Thomas Partey will fit into the system very, very well, but he won't change what the system is at the moment. He'll just be an upgrade of what the system looks like. And I think it's always going to be difficult when you've got a player like Aubameyang who plays wide in the system in the attacking phase because the ball's automatically attracted out to him, but he's got no interest in playing link-up and combination play. You're almost relying on the fact that, like, a so Lacazette or Villian will will drop into clever spaces on the other side or in the central area and just leave Aubameyang out to do his own thing. But it's really interesting when when you talk about the fact that the the system rotates and changes and Tierney'll go on the outside and Saka'll push up and we see Maitland-Niles play that left wing back position and when he does, he attacks up in the half space and not the wide area. It just shows the kind of influence that Chris Wilder at Sheffield United has had in the Premier League because these top, top coaches now are taking principles that Chris Wilder came up to the Premier League from the Championship with, with the the overlapping centre-backs that we heard about time and time again. This is the principle in action, and that's what that looks like. And We're seeing that principle used wider in football now. I'm seeing it in games I'm scouting at in the Scottish Premier League you're seeing centre-backs go outside the full-back and try to create mm. kind of overloads and create wins. And all of this has come from a coach who there was so little hype about when he came into the Premier League and there's been a certain amount of criticism this this season so far as well because Sheffield United haven't played quite as well as they did last season so far. But you can see the impact that this, this small tactical tweak has had in the, in the Premier League as a whole and it just shows that great coaches steal good ideas.
1: Yeah, because we've seen Pep use it as well at times this season and a little bit last season where if he sets up with his back three and Kyle Walker is that right-sided centre-back, he will bomb forward and underlap and overlap with the full-back. and Like you said, maybe that is the biggest compliment you can pay to Chris Wilder outside of what an incredible job he's done taking Sheffield United from League One, mid-table League One, to the Premier League, and then not just getting to the Premier League, but more than holding their own, coming out of the lockdown with a legitimate chance of Champions League football. Now, it it tailed off for them largely because of the small squad and a couple of injuries, but for all that, the biggest compliment to him may be that there, there are these managers who are at top, top clubs, and in the case of Guardiola, widely regarded as one of the greatest managers of all time. They're stealing little bits of of his tactical plan, and it does go to show the impact that Chris Wilder is having.
0: Yeah, massively. So, and at Total Football Analysis, we we offer a consultancy as part of part of the website, part of what we do. We work with clubs, work with coaches, work with teams to to provide insights. And, and one of the things that we had requested more often than anything else, and this was from clubs across Europe and up and down the football pyramid they wanted to know if we could provide insights into how these overlapping fullbacks worked, centre-back sorry, worked. And so many different coaches were looking for insights and looking for tips to see if they could do the same thing. And that's, it's really, really interesting. It's the first time, I think, that we have seen a, a huge substantial leap in terms of a tactical concept becoming a norm since the inverted fullbacks that Pep Guardiola started to use at, at Bayern Munich. And then obviously it was all over the media that when he came to Manchester City he was going to try and use the inverted fullbacks but he didn't have the fullbacks and so they went out and bought the fullbacks and everything's progressed from there to the point of the top level that we now see so many coaches doing it. Jorgen Klopp's done the same thing at, at Liverpool, you see um, Trent Alexander-Arnold situationally move into the right half space and allow Jordan Henderson to go outside and that's to give them a little bit more control in the centre but and doing that with the fullbacks moving into the centre, you can also have the centre-backs who are willing to move around the outside. And then as long as you're counterbalancing that from the opposite side of the pitch and having players shift over to provide defensive cover, it gives you so many options in terms of where you overload and break through a defensive unit. And all of that is massive credit to Chris Wilder.
1: I totally agree. So back to City against Arsenal. Um I thought this was one of the better performances uh, that we have seen from Rodri, Uh, sort of in that lone pivot, just given the midfield responsibility, I thought he actually thrived under the the circumstances.
0: Yeah, it was a very difficult match for him in that that sense, because Bernardo Silva did from time to time rotate in and if you watch the clip from Monday Night Football, Jamie Carragher does talk about the fact it looks like a four-two-four when City aren't in possession because Bernardo Silva drops in to play almost as a double pivot beside Rodri. But for all of Bernardo Silva's qualities, defensive pish- positioning and defensive cover is not amongst those. So Rodri had to be really, really good in terms of acting as a reference point. It's almost in the same way that Fabinho acts as a reference point against the ball for Liverpool so often he's the player who, who decides where the midfield block sits. And you'll see Fabinho for Liverpool moving his players around on the pitch because he understands where the gaps in possession are. And it was the same thing in this match with Rodri because you've got to you've got to remember as well that from time to time, when Arsenal won the ball back, Rodri would look to his right and Cancelo's gone well ahead of him in an inverted position. And Kyle Walker's isolated wide against Aubameyang. And suddenly there's a huge gap between... Ruben Diaz and Kyle Walker that, that Rodri has to position himself in in such a way to cut the passing lane and to stop Arsenal from breaking through there. I do think that Rodri was helped to an extent by the fact that Arsenal offered so little in their their construction to play through the centre because Danny Ceballos, as much as he was fated at Real Betis before he went to Real Madrid as an attacking 10, his role at Arsenal has become far more functional than that, not so creative if you like and and that's been a real feature of his play. I don't think that Arsenal created enough centrally and Rodri was able to almost be comfortable in controlling the game there. I think that the next evolution of this Arsenal team will be to find a way to put pressure on a six like Rodri, who's allowed just to sit in front of the defensive line and be be calm and, as you say, perform really well.
1: And the final point I wanted to put, uh, just touch on in this game um, was that, that back three of city with Walker, who is at this point in his career, he's sort of a fullback center back hybrid. Nathan Aki, who's kind of the same thing on the left-hand side. And then Ruben Diaz, who there were some doubts. I think some people had some doubts about him coming to the premier league. I've, I've been a fan of his for a couple of years. I thought he was commanding in this game in, in a way that city are going to need him to be. One of the knocks on him coming in was, He's not the best in the air. Well, early in this game, he won two massive headers. And I thought that kind of set the tone for him. And and you could see him sort of grow in confidence as this game went on, despite the fact that at times he was being left tasked with a massive amount of space to defend.
0: Yeah, and that's always difficult. You're right, Nathan Ake played almost exclusively towards the left-hand side of the pitch. And then he would cover back inside out of possession. But there was time in which the rotation had to happen and, and Ruben Diaz was left exposed. I think that I had my own doubts about Ruben Diaz coming into the City team because because of the the pressure that central defenders can be put under. I- Imeric Laporte is the exception. He always looks calm and composed no matter what's thrown at him. Vincent Company was the same when he played there. But while he was at Benfica, Ruben Diaz did play in a team that, that always or tended to always enjoy the line share of possession so he's played in possession dominant teams before in which he's been asked to play a high line so that he can be part of the construction phase as well and he can play those line breaking passes and then he's obviously had to defend behind him in space and transition so he does have that in his game I think that against teams that have a more not direct attacking threat because that's not right but Teams that offer a more balanced attacking threat and that will threaten the centre as well. I think that this system from City was was risky. I think you're right that Kyle Walker is the right-sided, almost hybrid player. He's got the pace to cover back in behind Ruben Diaz if he needs to. I'm still not convinced that Nathan Ake's got the same kind of pace. I think that Ake may have been slightly surprised if he played in that role against Arsenal, but you can't argue with the fact that it was... It was successful in this match and the Arsenal attacking line really struggled to, to occupy any space in between the lines or even behind the defensive line. It's a, it's a, real, a real plus for City that they were able to play in the system and, and have those four attackers with Phil Foden wide and Raheem Sterling roaming around the front line as the way that he was. They were able to do that because Arsenal weren't able to threaten the defensive
1: line effectively. So shifting on, um, I suppose the biggest talking points of the weekend came out of the Merseyside Derby. And I, I don't really want to get too much into them, if you want to touch on them, absolutely feel free. But the the Carlo Ancelotti versus Jurgen Klopp battle was a very interesting one.
0: Yeah, and this is something that we've seen rage for a little while when, when Carlo Ancelotti was the coach of Napoli, they gave Liverpool real issues defensively and the attacking phase as well because they were so effective against the ball at stopping Liverpool from constructing play. I think that a lot of it, I'm not going to go into the, the elements that you're talking about with, with VAR and all the rest of that, it's safe to say that I think that there was no way in hell it was offside. I don't think Sadio Mane was anywhere near offside for the... The potential winning goal, and I think that needs to be looked at retrospectively. I'm not as keen to see players punished retrospectively for tackles that were deemed dangerous and have led to injuries. I think that's a dangerous precedent that that could be open up problems in the future. So suffice to say that we need to trust players aren't out there to try to hurt one another more than anything else. A large part of the narrative that I saw, I, I commentated in this game and was obviously caught up in what I was doing, so I wasn't looking at Twitter throughout. But afterwards, when I looked at it, a lot of people seemed to be saying that Everton at least matched, if not dominated, Liverpool. I'm not entirely sure of what game they were watching because that's that's not what I saw. I think that Everton were very effective in the attacking phase. They... They used and played to their strengths really well in terms of using Calvert-Lewin to to play as the reference point in the attack. There was a couple of instances after Van Dyke had gone off. You saw Joe Gomez struggling to contain Calvert-Lewin with passes down the channels. Calvert-Lewin opened up his legs well and, and had a chance on goal. Calvert-Lewin scored an excellent header because they were able to work the ball with the wide areas and they know that if they, they hang the ball up in the area against the likes of Joe Gomez and even Joel Matip, Blue lewins always got the option in there. But in terms of controlling the match, for me, Liverpool were were by far the superior team, and Thiago especially had a, a really dominant performance for me. He he didn't do, there was nothing flashy other than I think the the pass that led to the offside decision for Sadio Mane, that was a no-look pass that he played between the lines into a channel, which is a flashy, let's face it, that's a flashy pass. But He did the simple things so effectively and you saw the importance of a a Thiago to this Liverpool team. But the combination of Andrew Robertson, Sadio Mane and Thiago on that side of the pitch really pinned Everton back. And that might be slightly because Ben Godfrey came on and had to play right back and he's never a right back. He's a, a ball playing central defender or even a six at a push but he's certainly not a right-back, and you saw him struggle at times positionally against Sadio Mane, which is understandable. But at the same time, Everton didn't offer as much. You didn't see James Rodriguez really getting on the ball, except for, I think there was one moment in the second half when he had space, he collected the ball on the edge of the area, first time killed it, and then put a cross in for Richarlison to throw himself at and hit the post. That was the, the one moment of real creative genius for me from James in the game, but Liverpool did a really good job and Fabinho did a really good job of keeping James quiet for me. I think that if you played the game for another five or ten minutes, there's no doubt in my mind that Liverpool would have scored and would have got a breakthrough. That's not to distract from Everton, though, because as much as I'm saying they weren't dominant, they were effective. And they were effective in the defensive phase and sometimes perhaps more robustly than they should have been. But I think that they did well for... For a team with a central defensive partnership who's so error-prone as Michael Keane and Yeremina and then Jordan Pickford, who's always going to throw away a goal, I mean, his attempt to save the ball for that third goal that was disallowed was ridiculous. He's very lucky that it ended up being called it, called off, but the likes of Alan was good, Takure was good again, so there were a lot of positives that everything could take from this game, but for me, From a tactical perspective, from a technical perspective, from a game management perspective, Liverpool were far the most dominant team. And I'm guessing that as a Liverpool fan, you're agreeing with me?
1: Yeah, I thought the same. I didn't really understand what people were talking about when they were saying that Everton matched Liverpool, let alone outplayed them. I think if you look at possession, you look at chances, you look at XG, Liverpool were the better team. Everton played well. I I take absolutely nothing away from them. They did play well. It was an improvement on what we've seen in previous games against Liverpool. They at least showed some ambition. They did try and go toe-to-toe with Liverpool. But Liverpool are just a better team than Everton. Yeah. That is just the be-all and end-all of it. Yeah. Liverpool are the reigning league champions, and Everton finished mid-table last season. And yes, they've improved, but Liverpool haven't fallen off a cliff. Um, I thought... I get, like I don't, I don't want to get into the 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 VA, like the the whole thing where the, the the changes to the handball rule have changed the offside rule for me is just is a nonsense um but dale it, dale johnson from espn has an absolutely brilliant thread on twitter that he put up on monday of explaining the var decisions from this weekend and from the game and you know dale is as clued in on that kind of stuff as anybody and he does <laughs> It is really frustrating that the rules are where they are. I thought the midfield battle was very interesting in the game because Alan has caused Liverpool a lot of problems in the past. Yeah. He's he's such a strong player, but I really felt like Liverpool dominated that middle third. I thought I thought Thiago was I thought he was the best player on the pitch. I thought Fabinho was a close second, and I thought Jordan Henderson was one of the maybe five best players on the pitch. I, I I did feel like Liverpool really controlled the game. Everton controlled space maybe quite well and limited what Liverpool were able to do, but you did sort of feel like if this game keeps going, Liverpool are going to score again and maybe maybe again after that.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think say, the issue that Everton had with the midfield system, Alan is, is excellent for me. You're right, he's given Liverpool a lot of problems, and, and rightly so because of his, his ability to read the game and block off passing lanes more than anything else. The cure was good, not as good as I've seen him. I think the issue that Everton had was Andrew Gomes. And during commentary in the second half, I kept saying that I had no idea why Andrew Gomez was still on the pitch. He continually gave the ball away when he was in possession. And his role in this Everton side is supposed to be he's the passer. You've got Alan as a destroyer, you've got Ducure as the runner who'll push forward into the final third, and Andrew Gomez is going to be the one who knits everything together and feeds the ball to James and Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin. But in this game, he didn't do anything, and Jordan Henderson was continually making runs off of him, behind him, into space around him, and, and Gomez wasn't getting anywhere near to Henderson. I think that one of my favourite parts about this game, and it's something that tells you about just how dominant Henderson was and Liverpool were, is that Jordan Henderson himself got more than one XG in this game. And I have no idea of another game when that's ever happened. That's that's gone by Y-scouts rating anyway at their XG model. They have him I think as 1.13 is XG himself for the game. And that's for a midfield player who tends to be yes he makes runs at the final third, yes he makes runs at the penalty area late, but he tends to be more of a peripheral player for Liverpool, not one of the main attacking threats. And that just tells me again just how poor Andrew Gomes was in this game. And for all that Everton have, have recruited well, they spent a lot of money, they spent a lot of money intelligently and in taken in the likes of James, the likes of Alan, the likes of Dukuri, Ben Godfrey as well. I think Ben Godfrey will replace Michael Keane or Yeri Mina because neither of them look like a Premier League centre back when they, they're up against it. I think that Andrew Gomes is still an issue for this team. We mm. need to find a better way to distribute the ball and whether that's finally admitting that Tom Davies should be in that team. For whatever reason, he keeps being overlooked. But I think he's a better player at this point than Andrew
1: Gomes is. I totally agree. I'm a big fan of Tom Davies. Now, I don't think he's developed as well as he should have, and I think that is an Everton issue. But that game was crying out for him because, as you say, Jordan Henderson just kept running away from Andre Gomes. And Gomes is he's a decent footballer, and he, you know he's he's decent on the ball but by God, that boy can't run. He is dog slow and he doesn't seem to have that desire to chase people either. Whereas Tom Davies will chase all day. Um, Jordan Henderson in attack. Someone once described it to me as if you were trying to, to rob a farm, you would let the horses out of the stable as a distraction. And then you'd go into the house and rob the farm. Jordan Henderson is the horses bolting from the stable to distract people, and and that's fine. That is, that's a, an important role for somebody to play. I thought, looking at that Everton team, it was quite clear to me they were trying to match up with Liverpool. So you had Decore as their Henderson, Alan as their Fabinho, and Gomez, Gomez as as their Thiago. Now, obviously, the levels are are, are <laughs> varying cr- across the board, but. I, I did think this was a game that they maybe could have used Gabaman in, where they could have sat him as the kind of sitter and then played De Corey and Alan and really just kind of tried to physically throttle Liverpool.
0: Yeah. A lot I liked about Mets so and he's been really unfortunate with injuries since not met. sorry, mine and he's been really unfortunate with injuries since he came to Everton. I think the Everton fans haven't seen what he can offer. But that would at least release Alan a little bit, because there's this misconception about Alan that he can't play and that he's only a six-sitter and a destroyer, and although that was his role in his Everton team, that's not all that Alan is. At at Napoli, quite often you would see him playing as the eight, especially when Jorginho was still there under Maurizio Sarri, but uh, Jorginho would play as the deep-line playmaker as the six, and then Alan and Marek Hamzik would push forward towards the final third, and he was really, really effective in that role, and I think that he can make a lot of good things happen for Everton because his technique is so good. He receives the ball and he's got this really strange style when he's in possession. He's not a he's not a dribbler that you would see in YouTube compilations because of his balance and agility, but he's so effective. He's like a bulldog when he moves past people with the ball and he's hard to stop. I think that Andrew Gomez just has to be recognised as the weak link and going forward for Everton, if they want to continue to challenge up towards the top four, top six places, that's the kind of position in the team that's going to really come back and bite them, because teams will look to expose that the same way that Jordan Henderson did. I really like your analogy about the farm for Jordan Henderson. I think that he is, I, I spoke a lot last season when I talked about Liverpool and various places, that Liverpool last season winning the league was because Jurgen Klopp had decided to start controlling the game more. He wanted his team to control things and dominate possession and force teams back. Henderson is the counterweight to that because he exists almost completely in chaos. He he presses all the time, he'll run everywhere and he does what he wants. But that chaos allows the rest of the team to be controlling. So it's really interesting that, that Liverpool still have that balance under Klopp.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I agree what you're saying about Alan. I've always preferred him further up the pitch. And when they were signing him and been linked with De Kure, I was thinking to myself, I, I kind of think that's a little bit redundant because the best role for both is that same yeah. sort of box-to-box role. Now, obviously, depth is, is important to them. Just one last question on Everton before we move on you mentioned Ben Godfrey coming in for either Mina or Keane. They also have Mason Holgate to come back, who I think is their best defender. Now, do you think they go with maybe Holgate at right back and then Godfrey plus one, or do you think the Godfrey Holgate pairing is what they should aim for moving forward? Knowing that as two young center backs, there are going to be errors and there will be a little bit of getting used to each other, but, it Does the upside outweigh the fact that maybe aerially they mightn't be as dominant as Mina and Keener?
0: Exactly. I think that's the key point. I think that of what Ancelotti and what Everton will want is a balance between the two. I agree. I really like Mason Holgate. I think that he's got a lot of qualities. I could see him filling in at right back. He would certainly be more effective at right back than Ben Godfrey was. I mean, ben Godfrey just looked like he was hanging out to dry. By, by coming on to that position. I, I felt when they did that that they would move to a three at the back but they didn't really it was just that Godfrey didn't know which positions to take up when Everton had the ball and that's because he's never played there and he's never he's not had enough time playing with this team to understand exactly what they do in possession yet. I think that Ancelotti really likes the aerial threat that Yeri Mina in particular has from corners and obviously we saw Michael Keane score from a corner in this match and that attacking threat from set plays is something that they will look to. But I think in the medium to long term, Everton, if they if they want to have a shot at being a serious side, they need to seriously think about the Ben Godfrey-Mason-Holgate-Central Defensive Partnership. But then that doesn't entirely negate the, the problem that is Jordan Pickford behind them.
1: No, and... um Recently on this podcast, I've just decided to go full in on, uh, on Jordan Pickford, who I've, I've always had major doubts on. I watched a lot of him when he was at Sunderland and didn't really see the hype. He's a good shot stopper. Um, in, he's more of a camera shot stopper than an effective shot stopper. He makes saves that look good in pictures. But as you mentioned for that, the Jordan Henderson disallowed goal, I have no idea what he was trying to do. Um, he's, I think he's overrated with his feet because he's English. I think if he was a foreign goalkeeper who kicked the way he does, far less would be said about it. His decision-making is atrocious. He is incredibly rash. He is dreadful on crosses. And he's got tiny little arms. And um, I, I've just decided not to be nice about it anymore. He does. He's, his, he's just too small. That is the be-all and end-all of it. There have been goalkeepers his height who have been good, but they had long arms. You look at Iker Casillas. If you ever see Iker Casillas standing with his arms by his side, he's got these incredibly long arms that look like gadget arms. Pickford has these little stumpy things. (laughs) And it sounds like I'm mocking him, and I am, of course, but it is an issue. And like you, I, I think... This was obviously the kind of the first summer for Carlo. And I think he he didn't want to do too much at once. Obviously, they did a lot. They brought in a lot of players, but there's still more to come. But I think going into next summer, a a top-end goalkeeper has to be number one on their list of priorities, followed by that midfielder, that creative midfielder, that that we've mentioned, where Andre Gomes just isn't of the calibre that you'd want. And Gilfie Sigurdsson is past being able to become that player.
0: Yeah, he definitely is. And we saw that when he came on. He was the player who came on for Andre Gomes eventually. And he really didn't make an impact at all in a positive sense. I think that they they went out and signed Olsen, of course, the, the goalkeeper on loan from Roman. He's a Mm. serviceable goalkeeper and he could well step in for Jordan Pickford and you certainly wouldn't see a fall-off, I don't think. He's not that next step goalkeeper that they need to be looking for now because that's the common denominator that you see now in top, top level teams. They they have the goalkeeper that allows them the platform for the defensive line to play higher. We saw that obviously with with Liverpool when Alisson was injured and Adrian comes in and some of the defence looks less secure because they're not as comfortable playing high and allowing him to have the ball. It's the same thing for Jordan Pickford. And I'll never understand why England don't start Nick Pope in goal, because there's such a a huge benefit to having a goalkeeper of that level compared
1: to Jordan Pickford. It's not even funny. Well, for me, I think at best, Jordan Pickford is the fourth best England goalkeeper because I, I, I think Nick Pope is is tremendous. I think Dean Henderson's tremendous. Um, I think I, I would rather have Alex McCarthy because I think he's more reliable. And I think there's a real argument he made that Fraser Forster at his best is better than Pickford at his best. I think when he was at Celtic over the last couple of years, he showed what a good goalkeeper he is. He obviously had a, a terrible time at Southampton in his last season there, but that was... Down to having had a major surgery and just not recovering from it properly um I'll be curious to see how Jack Butland does at Stoke whether he can ever get back to the levels he once showed but i I just there's no argument for me to even start to start Pickford for england and i I don't even know that he's deserving of a place in the squad, and it's not like England have a David Seaman or a Nigel Martin or a Tim flowers like a great goalkeeper right now. But I do think he is well down the list of the good goalkeepers.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, like I said, it's such an integral position now. Previously, you could have got away with a goalkeeper who was perhaps error-prone and perhaps a little bit eccentric. But because more teams now at the top level are using their goalkeepers as part of the build-up play, you need to have a goalkeeper that you can rely on behind the defensive line. Because... Otherwise, the defenders drop deeper, they're less comfortable, they're more worried about the ball over the top because the goalkeeper could be exposed. And it goes through the entire team. I think that it's an area that, that like Everton especially, needs to really look at. But the question, of course, is where the next great goalkeeper is going to come from.
1: I agree. If I'm not one to ever volunteer to help Everton, but if I can give them a little bit of guidance, uh, head for France... Go to Stad to Reims. Predrag Raskovic, I think, is is an exceptional goalkeeper. He, think, would be, he would be one, I'd suggest, that they should be looking at strongly.
0: I think everybody's a little bit surprised that he's still at Reims. I know mm. that when he moved to Reims, the likes of Monaco and PSG were very, very closely in for him. But he liked the fact that he was going to go in as the starter at Reims. And you've really seen him push on and develop from there. I mean, he's had such an odd career path. Yes, from- I mean spending time deciding to go to Israel as a young goalkeeper when there was a lot of hype about him at that point and he moved to Israeli football and played there for a few years and then to choose Reims as your your route back into Western Europe is quite an odd one. So you can certainly
1: see him ended up at an Everton because he he doesn't seem to like to take the conventional path. Exactly. And and look, the the be all and end all is that Carlo Ancelotti is a massive draw for players. Um shout out to Mac Maccabee, Tel Aviv who spent 3 million euro on him in 2015 and sold him four years later as a much better goalkeeper for 3 million euros. <laughs> whoever's handling the sales there, not doing a good job. The other one that they could maybe look at, who's less proven and a little bit younger, is Lunin at Real Madrid, the Ukrainian goalkeeper. I think he's got a very high upside as well, but he's not anywhere near as as, as far on as Rashkovich. Um, We won't give them too much help. We'll let them figure it out for themselves. Uh, Moving on then, the last thing we want to touch on was I suppose the rebirth of Aston Villa who stayed up last season on the basis of Hawkeye failing for I think the first time ever or maybe the second time in its history and this season have started as if, well we're going to win the league now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a natural progression right from that is
1: literally just one it's it's the very next step it's it's the Leicester City model you barely stay up you go and win the league
0: from from staying up because as against Sheffield United wasn't it just just after football restart when the ball was clearly in the corner of the net and and there was no no vibration and the referees watching he just continued to play I don't think I've ever seen something as clear and obvious as that but there we go I think we we talked about Liverpool about um, Aston Villa, sorry, in the back of the Liverpool game, and obviously we we talked about the fact that that kind of game will never happen again because there were so many deflections and mistakes that uh, Adrian giving the ball away for their first goal. And but I think now what we are seeing is an Aston Villa side who are really really starting to believe in themselves in a really serious way, and it, it's credit to Dean Smith who. I don't think in all of this is getting the credit that he perhaps deserves because he's somebody who was doing an excellent job at Brentford in the Championship and the, I think the main crux of the reason that he moved to Aston Villa, which many looked like, is yes, it's a bigger club, but it was almost a sideways step at the time in terms of how the teams were performing. But he's a massive Aston Villa fan and that was a draw for him. He wanted to go and manage his club. And what we're seeing now is is him start to really imprint his... Game model and his tactical style on this Aston What really impressed me against Leicester City was their play out of possession, because their pressing was constant throughout the game. Douglas Louise, John McGinn, Tresikay on the right hand side was selfless throughout the game with his his defensive work rate. And then they've got this really really interesting defensive line with Matt Target who. Didn't really make it at Southampton before moving to Aston Villa. Tyrone Mings, Ezri Konsa, who I really liked from Brentford, and of course Matty Cash, who I know that you like as well, Dave. And they've got this really interesting young core of players that just look like something's about to happen. And sometimes you get that in teams. You get you get a sense that something serious is about to happen. I think. The one thing, and, and when we talked about the Aston liverpool game, we referenced the fact that Jack Grealish played so high on the left-hand side. He did that again in this game, and he's almost playing as a second striker alongside Ollie Watkins at times. He's kind of freed up from the defensive responsibility because Douglas Louisa and John McGinn are so effective behind him. So suddenly you have Ollie Watkins, who's all running, all pressing, all harrying defenders and being a total pain in the arse all day up front. And then you've got the creativity of Jack Grealish playing just off him. But to that, they've then added a free and confident looking Ross Barkley, which is such an interesting addition because of his ability to play with those two and interlink, that all of a sudden we're seeing Aston Villa look like a completely different proposition. They're no longer weak and vulnerable defensively. And to be fair to them, their defensive issues were prior to lockdown more than anything else. Over lockdown. I think there were a lot of Zoom calls and Zoom sessions with the defenders talking about shape and what they should and shouldn't be doing, where they should and shouldn't be going. And we really saw post-lockdown their their defensive performance improve tenfold. But now they're looking like a much more solid, compact unit. And in attack, they've suddenly got all these different options. They've got ball carriers, they've got runners, they've got physical presence, they've got players who can score from range, they've got width from the, the... The fullbacks, Matty Target, moves up really well. Matty Cash has been less so. He's been kind of the the one player who's sat a little bit deeper than I thought he would. But Mm. with Trezicke providing width on that side, they're very left-orientated when they attack. But that's because they're so effective on that side. And I think we really need to give credit to Dean Smith for the job that he's doing.
1: I think we absolutely do. And I think think a lot of people sort of looked at the money that was spent last season and, and how poorly they performed for large portions of the year and put that blame on him when he wasn't the one making the decisions in terms of transfers I think you can see that this season he's had more of an input. I think Matty Cash and um, and Ollie Watkins are, are absolutely his signings. I think when you look at that back four obviously Cash came from the championship. Esri Consa came from the championship. Dean Smith had worked with him so you'd imagine he was his signing but Tyron Mings had obviously gone to Bournemouth and had sort of failed at the Premier League level with them, takes the loan to drop back down with Villa and comes back up with them. And then they spend quite a lot of money on him. Um, but he'd been written off having been a, you know, a, a quote unquote failure at Bournemouth. And like you say, Matty, uh, Matty Target came through at Southampton, but never sort of established himself. He he was expected to be the one who'd replace Luke Shaw. He never was able to beat out Ryan Bertrand for that starting position. Um, If you look at his time at Southampton, it was, you know, six, five, two league games. He had a couple of seasons where he played double figures, but never played more than half their Premier League uh, games in, in any of the six seasons he was in the first team squad there. These are all defenders that have come through things the hard way. And there's a real resilience to them. And like you, I thought they improved defensively after the lockdown. A big part of that was Ezri Konsa coming into the team. I, I think he's a really good defender. I and mean, he's someone I wanted Liverpool to sign when he was still at Charlton, let alone when he went to Brentford. Uh, I still laugh at the fact that Eddie Howe looked at Brentford and looked at him and Chris Metham. And Metham's fine. He's a, he's a solid centre-back. But I don't know how you could pay the, the same money for Metham and leave Konsa sitting there... For another six months, it was baffling to me. He did the same thing at Luton with James Justin and, and the other is it Simpson, the fullback he yeah. signed instead. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But it, you know that defense is just is working really well, and I think it's a really it's an interesting shape. As you say, Grealish plays so high and so centrally at times; he is almost like a second striker. McGinn is sort of shuttling out to cover in front of Matty Target. Trezeguet is working like an absolute dog up and down the right flank. And he, at times he's even find himself sort of becoming part of the midfiel- midfield three with Barkley then playing as a 10 behind Grealish and Watkins. And it's really interesting how this team is shifting around and how fluid they are. I'm taking all the credit for Ross Barkley because from <laughs> the first episode of this podcast until he signed, I was beating the drum of Ross Barkley as the perfect player for Villa. I wrote an article on Barkley on EPL Index about two and a half months ago about, well, not not just about him, but about how he could be the perfect signing for Villa. And I think what we're seeing at, at, at Villa is, unlike at Everton, he's not expected to be the best player or the second best player. So there's not that level of pressure on him. But unlike at Chelsea, he is one of the best players in the team. He's one of the three or four or five best players in the team. And I think that's the perfect sweet spot for Ross Barkley. He doesn't have too much pressure but he is respected and seen as one of the best players. I think that's just fed his confidence and the player we're seeing. I mean, this this is a guy who's, I know it's only two games, but in those two games he is starting to put down a marker that he needs to start for England come next summer.
0: Definitely, I don't there's any no doubt about that. His creative output in terms of what he's been able to do last season to that point and this season has been, been great. I think that you're right in saying that Ross Barkley was the perfect signing for them, that they, they've suddenly got an attacking player who can complement what they already have and takes a little bit of the onus off of Jack Grealish as well, because obviously the, the stat is that Jack Grealish was the most fouled player in the Premier League last season whenever we have got the ball, he could kick left, right and centre. And having Ross Barkley as a ball carrier from a deeper position kind of takes the takes the pressure away slightly and allows him to be a little bit freer. I think that just to quickly touch upon as well this game, it's worth pointing out that this was the the debut for Leicester City for Wesley Fofana, the the young defender they signed from St. Mm. and he looked really really good. For for people who haven't seen him play before, he's what I call a front foot defender. He's really aggressive against the ball. He likes to push up and make interceptions and make challenges, and he'll win the ball he'll win the ball on the ground. He doesn't mind being pulled outside. And I think that as things go on, a lot of people are going to start asking the question as to whether Arsenal signed the Romsen-Etienne defender when yeah. you see that William Saliba has yet to make any imprint at all in the first team. He he hasn't really been in the picture at all. And, and Wesley Fofana comes into this Leicester side and, and looks like he's made for the Premier League. I do think as well that this was a little bit of an insight for Leicester City into what life without Jamie Vardy is going to look like. And I I like... I just don't think that he's a player who you could rely on to lead your line for you. I think that they're going to have to find an alternative somewhere along the line for, for Jamie Bardi because it looked a little bit blunt from them. Um, but all in all, a very
1: good performance from Aston Villa. Yeah, I, I think with Leicester, when you look at their starting 11, um obviously Kasper Schmeichel is, is the goalkeeper, but he's now, was he 33, 34 now? so that's one position where they need to start looking for, well, who's the guy to replace him at, at the back. They've got Pereira. who will be their right back. When he comes back, you'd imagine that Castnier will start left back. It's not ideal, but that's, you know, he can play there. Uh, Evans and Sionchu, And now you have that replacement for Evans in Fafana, who will learn a, a whole lot from, from Johnny Evans, who I think is one of the most underrated players in the league. Yeah,
0: definitely.
1: Um, and also, that, that will work as a back three. I, I think you can play Evans, Fafana and Sayunshu as a back three, and it can work very effectively. In midfield, they've obviously got Ndidi, who's fantastic, Madison, who's fantastic, and Thielemans, who's fantastic, plus Dennis Priet, plus Hamza Chowdhury. It's a solid midfield, and um, Nimpali's Mendy as well. It is a solid midfield group. I think Cheng is under, if he can find his best level, can be a really good player on the right. You've got Harvey Barnes, who I'm a big fan of on the left. You've got the likes of Brighton Damari Gray, Eosie Perez, who can play in those positions as well. Oh, but up front is where the issue is. Vardy is Vardy, and he is a, a very specific type of player. And while I'm I'm with you, I like Ian Acho, I don't think he's developed the way I thought he would, but... I think he's most effective either in a two or off the bench. So for me, looking at Leicester, I think they have two needs. Find the person that's going to be your Jamie Vardy replacement. um, And and find whoever your Casper Schmeichel replacement is going to be. I don't think they have any sort of immediate needs. I think their starting 11 is, I would argue it's maybe the third best in the league after Liverpool and City. Now, I think Chelsea's has room to grow, but they have massive issues in defence. Arsenal have issues in midfield and a lack of creativity. United have issues in defence and in midfield. Leicester's first 11 is really, really strong, but when Vardy's not there, there is such a drop-off. And it kind of surprised me that Brendan Rodgers didn't give his old player Steven Gerrard a call and ask about Alfredo Morales, because I think he is exactly the type of player that could come in, replace Vardy, and give you an awful lot of what Vardy does. He's that pressing type of forward. He's got that pace to play on the shoulder. He's got that little bit of bastard about him that that Jamie Vardy has that makes him just so ruthless. Um, He's maybe a little bit more of a head case than Vardy, but he does seem to have stemmed that a little bit. But I mean, his goal record at Rangers is is sensational. This season, he's been a bit slower, but the, the previous three years, he's been great.
0: Yeah, and his output has been fantastic. He was the same at HJK Helsinki. I remember when he signed for Rangers, I did a bit of a scout report on him to, to let Rangers fans know what to expect. And, and my impression straight away was that he was a pure goal scorer. I'd never heard of him before, Quite openly admit met that finished football a little bit out of my, my comfort zone. So, mm. he came came to Rangers it was interesting to see how well he settled and what's funny is I'm I'm personally an Aberdeen fan and he has a, a running battle with Aberdeen he tends to get as many red cards against Aberdeen as he does goals and uh, he scores a lot of goals so he gets a lot of red cards against them but now with Scott McKenna having left Aberdeen for Nottingham Forest that those two were the ones that had that adversarial they just didn't like each other didn't get on they were constantly at each other in games so he definitely has that little bit of a bastard and the other one that I would suggest to perhaps look to replace Jamie Vardy from the other side of Glasgow where Odson Edward, mm. he is seriously, seriously good. I think he's up there with the likes of Virgil van Dyke and Henrik Larsson. And go back a little bit, show my age a little bit. I remember the Rangers team of Brian Loudrop and Paul Gascoigne and, and all of yeah. the players. For me, Odson Edward is up there with that kind of calibre caliber of players you can see that he already has the ability from a physical and technical point of view to, to mix it at the premier league level. I just think it's a case of a club stumping up the money and are going to have a goal scorer for the next five, six years.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of him. I really, really am. I think he's a tremendous player and it was striking to me that Moussa Dembele was great for them, for Celtic. They sold him and every thought, well, they're going to have a really tough time replacing him. Yeah. They found a better player. Um, when Morales signed for Rangers, I remember reading it, and I had to read the sentence about four times that they'd signed a Colombian who was playing in Finland. Yep. it, was, it, it just did such a weird career path for him to go. It it you know like like Rajkovic that we mentioned earlier on. Um, it's just it's a it's not the type of move that you really see happen very often. But um, yeah. I, I think a couple of long-term needs that they should start to fill in January. They should start looking in January to plan for that. But I mean they're a really good team, and yes, they were depleted in this game. They had they had Pereira was out, Saiyunchu was out, and Didi was out, Vardy was out, and obviously James Madison's not fully fit yet. But it's a big, big win for Villa, and it's back-to-back big wins for Villa. Four wins from four. Only two goals conceded. They're the only team with a hundred percent record, best defensive record in the league by a substantial margin. Like, I, I think we have to take them. No, I, I don't think they're any kind of threat to get top four this year. I have to be honest, but I do think they're a real, a real contender for a top half finish. I think tenth is is definitely attainable for them, and unfortunately for Dean Smith, he's he's putting more pressure on themselves because. The owners are very, very rich, very, very ambitious and will want results, will want return for their money. They will have accepted last season that staying in the Premier, the Premier League was, was success, coming up with success, staying there is success. Now they'll want progression. So I think the bar will be raised for Dean Smith this year. And not to write him off, because I, I do think he's a good manager. I think the Villa job will all of a sudden start to become a lot more attractive to people than it has been for the past 15, 20 years because they've got mega-rich owners. Grealish is locked in long-term. You've got a great fan base there, like a tremendous fan base, a club with incredible history who can turn to a manager and say, look, this is where we've been and this is where we want to get back to. We have the money to do this. We have the ambition to do this. We're not asking you to win the league, but we think we can win cups here. We think we can challenge for top four, and that's what we want. And that could be very appealing to a lot of managers that maybe wouldn't have considered Villa even six months ago.
0: Yeah, I think you're definitely right. And it's interesting as well that after last season's recruitment, which, as you touched on earlier on, really, really didn't go well. They spent a lot of money in their own players. They, they changed their sporting director and hired Johan Lange, the, the former Copenhagen director of football who was responsible for their recruitment and their the, the recruitment at Copenhagen is at a very high level. So obviously they've got a long-term plan, they've got a strategy, they want to do things the right way and you're absolutely right with the stature of the club and the way the club's set up and the infrastructure that's there and the money that's behind them they do have the potential to be a regular challenger for at least the Europa League places going forward.
1: And not forgetting a great academy there as well, I mean there's a continual trail of players There's The Ramsey boys Aaron and Jacob Are meant to be Exceptionally high prospects um, The Is it Louis What's the kid's name That they bought Louis from Buddy. Barcelona Yes Buddy. He is meant to be exceptional um, You do have to ask questions On West Brom And how it is That they produce players Like him And Morgan Rogers And Ferguson And countless others Over the years and as soon as they all get the opportunity to leave, they're running for the exit door. Uh, West Brom's academy is is low key one of the best in in England, but the players don't ever make well don't don't seem to make the step to first team level very very often. Certainly not the best players that they have.
0: No, absolutely, and that's something that for a club of West Brom's stature having a a youth system that's able to produce players for your first team should be one of the key things that they're looking to build towards so it is interesting louis barry obviously he made the move to barcelona but you understand a young player having his head turned by barcelona but when he was due to come back to england when he, he didn't quite settle i think i don't think it was a problem with performance i think he didn't settle from a personal point of view as a young man in a foreign country in barcelona I think that when he tried to come back, the fact that he was quite happy to move to West Brom's biggest rivals in Aston Villa speaks a lot about how they didn't quite, I don't know, make him feel like he was part of the furniture at West Brom more than anything else. I think that Aston Villa have done very, very well and they've had a great youth system at Aston Villa for the last 20, 30 years with countless players that have come through and ended up at different clubs. Now the key thing is for them to be able to integrate those into the first team.
1: Absolutely, because when you see how how much Jack Grealish has grown, it, it can be a real pathway for others. Um, we'll leave it there then. Okay, um, anything coming out this week, Lee, Lee, that you want to make people aware of other than the the aforementioned Scouted Football podcast that you were on this week?
0: Yeah, you can check out that podcast myself and Joe Donahue. We talked about four teams um, from the Europa League who've got a lot of under-23 talent. Um, Really good podcast. Joe's really knowledgeable and it's always great to be involved with scouted football. If you want to follow any of my writing, I've got a lot more articles coming out this week. We've had a little bit of a a lull in the consultancy side of things with the transfer window coming to a close. So I'm getting back to writing again. Uh, You can find anything that I do post, though. I'll put links up on Twitter at FM Analysis.
1: Perfect. And make sure you check out Lee's books. King Klopp, Rebuilding the Liverpool Dynasty and Mastering the Premier League the the just incredibly in depth book on Pep Guardiola's tactical concepts uh, and do follow Lee on Twitter like he said at FM analysis and keep hassling him for the next book not the one he's writing at the moment the one after that because that's where the decision lies who's it going to be uh, this <laughs> yeah. is say again
0: I think uh, I think I've narrowed it down almost so we're getting there
1: oh good stuff good stuff Uh, right that's it that's our show for today thanks as always for listening thank you to producer Guy Drinkle thank you to Fox for the title music and I will see you tomorrow take care
0: Podcast Network.